and then began to make his way over the snowy lawns to the stables. He felt as cheerful as if he were setting out on a campaign as he swung himself up into the saddle and rode off down the drive. As he rode toward Greenbanks, he could feel the feathery brush of snow on his cheeks, and then, as the old house came in sight, he could hear shrieks and yells from the hillside above the house, where the young people were sledging. That flame of rebellion that had brought him this far was suddenly flickering. He felt unaccountably shy and not sure of his welcome. Jimmy, the Harrington's boy, appeared with a cheerful, Good day, sir. I'll take your horse to the stables. Sir John and Lady Harrington are in the drawing room. The front door was open and a pretty maid was bobbing a curtsy. He could hardly retreat now. He squared his shoulders and walked in. The drawing room, when he was ushered in, seemed to open its arms to engulf him in warmth and colour. And there was Lady Harrington springing to her feet with a glad smile of surprise on her face, and Sir John, more lethargic, putting aside his newspaper and saying, Well, this is a surprise and a very welcome one, too. You need a glass of mulled ale to put you to rights after your ride, Colonel. The colonel had been schooled by his wife not to talk of military matters, not suitable for polite company, and so he was gratified to be plied with questions about the Battle of Waterloo and had he met Napoleon and was the little Corsican as mad as they said. A glass of mulled ale in his hand and a roaring fire at his feet, the colonel began to talk, shyly at first, and then Fired by the rapt attention of his listeners, he relived the battle and then began to talk of Napoleon. I was disappointed, he said. I thought him a petulant, shabby sort of fellow, but Wellington said his very presence on the battlefield was worth the strength of several regiments. Back at the colonel's, Mrs. Tenby was rattling the study door furiously for the umpteenth time. May I suggest, madam, said Peter the footman, that I walk along the terrace and look in the window and see if Colonel Temby is all right. Her heavy face cleared. Do that. I will wait here. Peter went outside and along the terrace. He looked in the study window and a grin crossed his face as he saw it was empty. He lifted the window and climbed in and went and unlocked the door. The colonel is not here, madam, said Peter. Not here? Not here? But how did he get out? And where has he gone? Peter, who had easily deduced that his beleaguered master had probably escaped by the window, stood wooden-faced and refrained from comment. Oh, go about your duties, snapped Mrs. Tenby. See that there are enough logs in the drawing room. Peter went to the drawing room where a small group of people were sitting about, looking bored. Where's Travers and Jensen, not to mention Miss Andrew and Miss Charteris? asked one young man. I understand they have taken a sledge and gone over to the Harrington, said Peter, taking logs out of the basket and building up the fire. Lucky them, said the young man moodily. Wish I'd thought of that. Dead as the grave here. You will find, sir, if I may say so, said Peter, delicately laying the idea on their bored minds 
as he laid a log on top of the blaze, that is, it's not too late to join them. And the Harringtons are very easy-going, welcoming people. The young man stood up. I'm going. There was a chorus of, wait for us. There are some sledges in the tack room, said Peter. It would be a good idea to take some more. So, Mrs. Tenby, after driving about the estate searching for her missing husband, returned to find that a large number of guests had disappeared as well. She could only content herself with the thought that Lucinda and Harriet were in Oxford with Lord Ranger and Lord Paul. Lord Ranger and Lord Paul were having a pleasant day. Both Lucinda and Harriet had been schooled all their young lives to please and flatter men. They were comfortably aware of the admiring stares they received as they went.